This is soteriology number seven. So we're, uh, we're working through the study of salvation. And here's our 30,000 foot outline introduction. And then we covered, um, we're looking at it, trying to think through salvation, the doctrine of salvation chronologically. So right now we're looking at prior to the salvific moment, what took place. And we've discussed God's forbearance. So that's his patience and not immediately destroying us upon our own sin, which is what we deserved. Um, then we looked at God's foreknowledge, um, looking at texts like 1 Peter 1, um, Romans 8, speaking of the foreknowledge of God that um, 1 Peter 1 puts it, Peter's writing to the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Then we talked about election, the next step in the process, um, the last three weeks, and then this morning, Lord willing, we're looking at predestination, which is related with these, um, but there's some nuances. So, how would how would you define predestination? <clears throat> oh, I should have made blanks in your definition there. Unbelievable. Okay, so pre means before, and destining is what you're going to do. So it's like to set your destiny ahead of time. Hmm? Anything else to add to our definition? We'll work with it. So this definition, it's from the United Bible Society Handbook. It's a handbook for translators, translating from the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. Um, their definition of it was the Greek verb translated predestined is a compound verb meaning to mark out beforehand or ahead of time. So it's kind of like our English predestined. It's a compound word. Predestined, pre plus destined. In Greek, it's similar. Um, it's pra arizo. So to mark out beforehand. Pra is just a Greek preposition talking about timing. Um, but then we have, it's only, this word, praarizo, is only used five times in the Greek New Testament. There's not a Hebrew equivalent necessarily, um, but there are some texts that give us similar ideas, and we'll go and look at some of those in a little bit. But these are your five main texts, Acts 4.28, 1 Corinthians 2, um, Ephesians 1 has it twice, and then Romans 8.28 to 30. So we'll look at Romans 8 and Ephesians 1, 3 to 6 first, because those texts have a lot of import into the theology of predestination. Then we'll look briefly at the other ones. Um, what's interesting, just an observation that you'll probably notice as we work through these texts, all five times the word is used in the New Testament, it's used speaking of God. Um, it's an action that God does. So let's go over to Romans chapter 8. Once again, these, the book of Romans at the funeral yesterday, um, my wife's uncle Mark, he was preaching it. He's a pastor in Reno, and um, he talked about grandpa. One of the things grandpa would always say, he'd say, hey, if you've got your Bible and you set it down on its spine and let it open wherever it will, it better open to Romans chapter 8. So I think... I think his point was there's a lot of good material in the book of Romans, and Romans 8 in particular. 
So let's think about it for a minute here. Who wants to read it for us? Romans 8, 28 to 30. Thanks, Diana. observations from the text there specifically related to the idea of predestination. What observations do you notice? Mm-hmm. We've got the predestined word in there. And mm-hmm. it's kind of in this context Romans chapter 8 is detailing how God begins to produce his righteousness in us the righteousness that's been revealed through the gospel he begins to produce that in us through his spirit Um, he uses trials to do that um, and his spirit begins to help us desire from the inside what we already were required to do by God on the outside. But the Spirit produces that desire in us to long after righteousness. And he causes us to cry out back in verse 15, Abba, Father. There's a, there's a very real sense in which part of the Spirit's job is to help us experience the intimacy of our relationship with God through his Son. It's a really neat ministry. So then... Verse 26 and 27 talks about how the Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groanings too deep to be uttered um, because he knows the mind of God um, and so he can intercede on our behalf even when we don't know what to pray for, the Spirit can pray for us. And that's the context where he then says, verse 28, well, we know that all things work together for good to those who love him. And then, at least in my mind as I read Paul, he he hangs up on the word called. He says, to those who are the called, according to his purpose. And he's like, well, wait a second. Let's talk about that word. What does it mean that we're called? So then that's verses 29 and 30. And it begins to define what it means that all things work together for good. It's not just that all things are good, because a leaky roof is not a good thing. No. And the trials of life, the wickedness of our world, those are not good things in and of themselves, but God has a good purpose in them that he talks through in verses 29 through 30. So he says, before there was a calling, he foreknew us. Then those he foreknew, he predestined. Somebody observe for us, what is the purpose of predestination according to verse 29? God has a plan for our lives. Character and purpose. It's true. He still lets us have free will in this. Yep. I'm thinking of people who would, well, I was called to be a such and such, or 
Yeah, so do people use that interchangeably as in God in eternity past predestined me to be a plumber? I was called to be a plumber. That was my calling. I don't know. I don't know probably anyone who says that, but. Called to be. So the ministry. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Maybe it's a little bit different, but it's a similar idea that God has a purpose um, for our lives. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's the purpose we get. 29. He foreknew us and he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, to be like Christ. That's the purpose that the trials are working. All things work together for good, and what is that good? That God has foreknown us, predestined us to this purpose of being conformed to the image of his son. Exactly. is yep separate step in this some people call this the golden chain of salvation so how it goes from foreknew predestined called justified glorified so the thought that we get in it is there's no one that god foreknew and predestined that he didn't also call and there's no one that god foreknew predestined and called that he didn't also justify and if there's anyone who's justified because he was foreknown predestined and called there's no way that God will ever let him go. Um, he will bring it to completion, Philippians 1 says. He'll be glorified also. Tim, it looks like you're raising your hand. That's his practical application at the end of chapter 8. Is, well, if God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified you, there's nothing that can separate us from his love. It's beautiful. The security, the assurance, the confidence that brings.
As good as done. <laughs> right. I just had a little glitch in my brain here about competition. I'm probably thinking it wrong. Many are chosen and few are called, and many are called and few are chosen. Yeah. Uh, which one is that? <laughs> I think it's many are called, but few are chosen. Let's go. Does anyone remember where that is? Jesus said it. Yeah. Matthew twenty two, fourteen. Because he gives this he gives this uh Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? This parable about the marriage feast where he goes out and invites the, the special guests to this marriage ceremony. Um, a king, he's arranging it. And remember, the, the specially selected wedding guests refuse. They say, no, we're not coming. Um, so they treat his servants spitefully and kill them. Verse 6, the king is furious, destroys the murderers. And then he says to his servants, well, the wedding's ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. So go out um, and find as many people as you can and just invite them. Um, so then verse 11, that's when the king came in to see the guests. He sees a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And he says unto him, friend, how came you in here? not having a wedding, wedding garment, and he was speechless. Then says the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. There's this application of it. Is, so there's this parable of we invite all these wedding guests. They're called, but this guy who did not have on a wedding garment was not chosen. It also comes up back in Matthew chapter 20. Um, Jesus in the context says so the last shall be first and the first last for many be called but few chosen it's the same word um, eklektos that we talked about for election yep. so it's talking about a salvation sense because that guy gets cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mm -hmm. So theologians, some theologians distinguish, they say, okay, there's a general call for salvation where the invitation is open for every person who's ever lived to come and to be saved by Christ. But then not everyone who has been called responds um, positively to that, to that invitation. So then some would say, using passages like Romans 8, that there's a special sense of calling where it's a salvific call. There's a general invitation, but then they would call it an efficacious call. In other words, that's when the Spirit is working in one's heart through the gospel such that they respond positively with faith. Um, so they would call that an efficacious call.
maybe it's a maybe it's a distinction without a difference, but but it is interesting to think about how this call is universal. But then Paul does back in Romans eight, he does use it in a different sense where it's only those who are foreknown and predestined who are called. So, however you work through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so the chosen would be those who are predestined. Exactly. Yep, they're the elect. They will be saved. Okay, so Romans 8. I have a question for you. Please. Sometimes it feels like uh, we're making all this too complicated. Just getting to the bottom line, we're all making it complicated. To explain to someone who's not a Christian, too tedious and Yeah. I think this is there any more to it than that? I think this this is one of my favorite verses actually. You're like stories the way you could you speak up to I said this is one of my favorite uh, stories because it I think it's pretty clear. You don't come in with your filthy rags. You gotta put on Christ's righteousness. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think it's pretty clear there. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. I think that's why Jesus Yeah, he says that he teaches in parables for two reasons. So that the Jewish leadership who is rejecting him wouldn't understand because it's too complex for them. But then, so that his disciples would understand because it's simple. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. It is interesting, Warren. You're exactly right. So we we can dig deep, but then we've got to zoom back out and say, okay, keep the main thing, the main thing. That's that we know we're sinners for whom Christ died and rose again, such that when we believe, we're saved. And then that call is our evangelism tactic. It's an invitation. Sorry? Yeah, but God didn't put it on accident in the scripture. Predestination probably doesn't make our gospel presentation. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, even Peter. That's true. Peter wasn't so simple. 
Oh boy. Ephesians 1. Let's go over there. This one, um, we won't spend too much time on it because Pastor did just preach through it, but I want to look at it because it's this along with Romans 8. These are the two primary texts that give us the sense of predestination. Um, Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Okay, so that's the first blessing he lists, is that God chose us in Christ prior to the foundations of the world for the purpose so that we would be holy and blameless before him. Okay, but then we have our verse here, verse 5 having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. And so to the point of what Diana said earlier, that's the ultimate goal of all of salvation, specifically of predestination, is to the praise of the glory of his grace. It's all to glorify Christ, such that he would turn around and glorify the Father. But... What do we, any observations here about predestination in Ephesians 1? What's the purpose that he gives here? Right. So in Romans 8, the purpose of predestination was that we would be conformed to the image of his dear son so that Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now we see the purpose here is so that we would be able to be adopted as the sons of God. And it's really interesting. um, The Greek word there for adoption is um, huiathesion. So it's from the Greek word huios, which means sons. So it's a Greek, it's a compound word meaning specifically adoption as sons. It's referring to the legal aspect of adoption so that a son would then be an heir. So that's why it says sons. I know we're sons and daughters for the ladies, but in a real sense, you're also sons in that you are also heirs. You're not a daughter who's excluded from inheritance in Christ. But the question here is, How is it connected? And this is the same question in Romans 8. Um, Romans 8, it's pretty clear, foreknowledge precedes predestination. 1 Peter 1 we looked at, it was clear that foreknowledge was the basis of election. It said elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Here we have, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, but then this is a participle here, having predestinated us. Um, It's an aorist participle for what it's worth to you. Um, which often gets at the idea, it's often translated as a past tense in English, and um, scholars would try to say it's a punctiliar action. It occurred at one point in time. It's not an ongoing process. Um, The nuances of the tenses in Greek, we're not going to get into that, but that's a little snapshot of Arist. But there's three primary ways this could be interpreted. Um... Sorry, I'm bad at doing notes and slides. We'll talk about timing in a section. Here in a second, here's your connection, connection options. Attendant circumstance, 
um, the idea of an attendant circumstance is that it's a coordinate action. It's like Daniel um, ran and jumped. It's, it's a sequence of events that it's just happening all in one action. Run and jump. It's not, I ran, then I stopped, then I jumped. Um, so an attendant circumstance, even though it's a participle, it would still be translated as another verb. So God chose us and predestined us. Another way that it's interpreted is means. So this answers the question of how. How did God elect us? How did God choose us? By means of predestining us under the adoption of sons. The final way it could be interpreted is causal. Um, This answers the question, why? Why did God choose us? Why did he elect us? Because he had predestined us to be adopted as sons. Does that make sense, the nuances of those? Not that we can even deduce what is the right one, and it might have more than one included in it, but this is the fun of grammar, is trying to understand how the words are connected, what meaning the connection is conveying. But then it relates with timing. Is election first or is predestination first? Does it really matter? Well, here's at least what um, one Greek handbook says about it. The aorist participle is normally, though by no means always, antecedent in time to the action of the main verb. Antecedent means before. So that would... Well, let me keep going, and then we'll talk about it. But when the aorist participle is related to an aorist main verb, which in Ephesians 1 it is, the participle will often be contemporaneous or simultaneous to the action of the main verb, which would get to the idea of what we just saw of attendant circumstance, that it's a coordinate action. Election and predestination go hand in hand. Does that make sense? There we go, running and jumping. I love it. Yeah, all coordinate actions. Running and jumping and praising God. Just careful, don't do it in the parking lot. Slip and fall. Uh, So the nuances, it's fun to think about. Um, It's helpful because it's just trying to contemplate meaning. And anytime we contemplate meaning of Scripture, it's a good thing because that's the act of meditation. It helps fill our hearts and minds with the Scripture. But comments there or questions on Ephesians 1, that passage? Why didn't he just sort of lump it all together? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. <laughs> exactly. It's all one seamless process. There are steps in the process, but they all happen together. Yeah, they're coordinate ideas. Yeah. I like that word, an organic theology. An organic theology. That's right. Warren's got to write it. I can't. I'd be plagiarizing it. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, I will. It's on recording, so now we've got it. Warren said it's an organic theology. Birth, growth, and maturity. Boom. And the date, January 15th of 23. Let's go over to Acts 4. We'll just rapid fire work through these. So 
So Acts chapter 4, the context here is, remember, Peter and John, they were preaching. They get um, taken before the chief priests, and they get charged, no longer speak in the name of Jesus. And so they return um, to their own companions, Acts 4.23. They report what the Jewish leadership told them. And so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the mouth of your servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage? Quoting Psalm 2, And the people imagined vain things. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth, against your holy child Jesus, whom you have anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. All of these foes were gathered against Christ. And what were they going to do? Verse 28, For to do whatsoever your hand, speaking to God, And your counsel determined. That word determined is our word. Determined before to be done. Predestined to be done. There's a very real sense in which the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ was ordained by God before he even created time. No doubt about it. But he uses that word predestined there. Okay. Thoughts there, or should we go over to First Corinthians, or as we go to First Corinthians two? Thoughts on Acts four. All right. So First Corinthians chapter two, verse seven, is where we're headed. Chapter one. Remember, Paul's discussing the folly of the cross toward men. Um, oh, it's a stumbling block. Um, For the Jews, to the Greek, it's just foolishness. Um, But to us who are being saved by it, it's the wisdom and the power of God, he says. Now in chapter 2, Paul starts off talking about how he did not come with eloquence, um, with human wisdom. But instead, the wisdom and the power were from God. Um, Paul spoke humbly, but he rested on God's power as he declared the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, verse 6, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained. That's our word, praarizo, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Hmm. How do we... How do we work through this one? What does this add to our thoughts on predestination? What's bouncing around in your heads? Well, if you were speaking of a mystery until a set time, because mm-hmm. the next verse tells us that if it happened to happen that way, then Jesus wouldn't have been crucified. That's right. The princes of the world didn't know it because it was a mystery. Otherwise, they wouldn't have crucified Christ because that was God's greatest victory against them. But they didn't know it. It's beautiful, the wisdom of God. He totally outsmarted Satan, and Satan didn't even see it coming. It's incredible. And he did that by predestining it, ordaining it. Mm-hmm. I think even as a Christian for myself, sometimes I can get a little bit of the glory 
And now we get to see the whole mystery unveiled through the gospel. It's pretty cool. All right, then let's go back to Ephesians 1. And this is where, um, well, yeah, go back to Ephesians 1. This is not where we'll close. We've got one more text to go to. Um, But back to Ephesians 1, because he uses it later on in this gospel hymn, this triune gospel hymn. He talks about how the Father chose us and predestined us to the praise of the glory of his grace. Then, verse 7, in whom, speaking of the beloved who is Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood. So now we have how the Son purchased this plan of redemption by the price of his own blood. Um, Verse 8, God has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, making known the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. Verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. That word, it's related to lots. It's like casting the lots, and we, the lot fell on us. Um, But then he says, we've obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his, unwill, of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom also you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Then he goes into what the Spirit did. But what we learn in verse 11, our inheritance is related to our predestination. So again, this participle, it could be translated a couple ways. Causal, so like um, we have obtained an inheritance because we were predestined, or it could be antecedent time. That means before. Um, So I'm having a hard time getting it in my mind. So in other words, the predestination took place before we obtained an inheritance. That's a way it could be translated. Because it's interesting because we're trying to understand how God who has infinite wisdom and knowledge, God doesn't have a process of thinking through things and coming to a conclusion. His thoughts happen in a moment, and boom, it is reality. Um, but there is there is a logical sequence to it in the mind of God, and then in our experience, we live bound by time, whereas God does not. So there is a chronological experience of it as well. Where the, the inheritance, our inheritance as believers in Jesus Christ, who were purchased by the blood of Christ, our inheritance was as good as inherited from the moment that God planted in eternity past. And yet we have not yet received the fullness of the inheritance. We still await that culmination of all things in Christ. But I think it's interesting because what we get at, let me find my other slide. 
Um, that third bullet point, initiative, this is an observation about predestination is that what it does is it serves to highlight, to emphasize, to underscore the initiative of God in salvation. We didn't first pursue after God. God first pursued after us because in eternity past, he planned all this. He knew that we would sin, and yet he chose to love us anyways. He chose to give his own son to die so that we could even be saved. Um, He chose to elect, to foreknow, to elect, to predestine, to call. All of it is based on the initiative of God. I know in the Psalms it talks about God is salvation. Hmm. But we get that salvation from Jesus Christ. Amen. And I think people sometimes understand that Jesus Christ is our salvation, which he is, but he was the initiator of that mm-hmm. salvation. Just because God is love, God is grace, God is mercy, God is salvation. Yeah. good it's one of his characteristics god is salvation amen so we noticed the purpose of predestination romans 8 says we were predestined basically to sanctification to be conformed to the image of his son ephesians 1 through 6 we were predestined to adoption so that we could be adopted by god as his inheritors as his sons and daughters Um, And then chapter 1, verse 11, says that the purpose was, verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory. Because we who first trusted in Christ, Paul and the original believers, and then those who also trusted after they heard the word, the people to whom Paul had preached, the whole point of the reason for our salvation is so that we would be to the praise of the glory of God. So same with predestination. The timing of it, You can think on that as long as you want, trying to understand the mind of God in eternity past. But we do understand that predestination occurred sometime in eternity past, prior to the foundations of the world. Those compare references, um, let me just read Psalm 115, verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever he has pleased. And those verses, each of those, Revelation 4 being the exception, they are getting at the the thought that God does whatever he wants. Ultimately, he's in charge. That's what it's saying at the end of verse 11 in Ephesians 1. He's the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will. That is incredible. The infinite wisdom and power of God, such that he incorporates our human free will, the angelic free will, everything that's ever happened in history and that will happen in future history, God is incorporating all of it such that it all works together after the counsel of his own will. Yeah, it's his own counsel. He doesn't have a counsel, yeah. i.e. 27 angels sitting around chaptering him. <laughs> he is his counsel. Hmm. I think that's just amazing. Yeah, he needs no counselor. Yeah, and again, Psalms talks about who is his counselor and who that's can right. build us to. And, you know, yeah. Nobody is God's counselor. Amen. And then Revelation 4, just to bring it to an adoration, and then we'll talk about one more thing. Revelation 4, verse 11 says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and for your pleasure they are and were created. Everything created for God's pleasure. So then, 
let's have just a brief conversation about what some would call double predestination. Basically, um, and this is a minority view now, um, but some in what is called Calvinism um, would say that God, prior to God's ordaining the fall, they would say God decreed the fall. He said this is going to happen, that man will sin. Um, before he even decreed the fall, he ordained some, predestined some, to eternal life, but others to eternal damnation. If you're anything like me, that kind of a theology strikes us a little weird. God predestined some to hell? Well, let's think about it. Go over to Romans chapter 9. That's where we'll finish. But as you're going there, Romans, the whole book of Romans is about the righteousness of God as revealed through the gospel. So Romans 1.16, we're familiar with it. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Gentile. And then he says, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed um, from faith to faith, through the gospel. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. But then, verse 18, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So the wrath of God is incurred through suppression and rejection of the truth. And in verses 18 through 32 in Romans chapter 1, he begins to detail what that looks like. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They exchanged the natural use and of sexuality and instead turned to homosexuality. And because mankind was exchanging what God had given for debauchery, God gave them up to fulfill their own lusts. And there is a passive sense of the wrath of God where when one rejects God's gift of grace, then he gives them up to go after their own sin. So we have this idea of righteousness. It's revealed through God's wrath against sin, but it's also revealed through his giving his own son so that we could be saved and so that justice would be appeased. Yeah, he knew beforehand where they were going, but God doesn't send them there. Mm-hmm. Yep, he gives them the choice. So Romans 9 is one of the key texts people struggle with when they come to this thought. Verse 22, what if, uh, well, verse 21, has not the power, has not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another unto dishonor? It's a practical illustration. Someone who makes pots they can make one to hold disgusting things and one to hold clean water. The potter gets to choose. Then he uses that as an illustration. Verse 22, he gives a hypothetical. What if God, willing or wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And I'll let you read the rest of the context if you want, but what people get hung up on is this concept of vessels of wrath fitted for, excuse me, fitted for destruction. 
Now, the word predestination doesn't come up in here. Um, It's a totally different Greek word. But what is interesting is how do we work through that? We're over time. Let me just say a couple thoughts about it. First of all, that word fitted for destruction, it's a middle slash passive, meaning in Greek, in English, we only have active and passive verbs. An active verb is Daniel threw the ball. A passive verb would say the ball was thrown by Daniel. Um, but then in Greek, there's another um, voice. Thank you. There's another voice. It's called the middle voice. And essentially, it would be the ball was thrown by Daniel on behalf of Daniel. So my picture is active, Daniel threw the ball. Passive, the ball was thrown by Daniel or even thrown to Daniel. I'm receiving the action of the verb. But in the middle, I picture it as Daniel's throwing the ball, but throwing it up in the air and I'm catching it. I'm throwing it on behalf of myself. It's a reciprocal action, meaning the action of the verb is done passively, but it comes back to me. Does that make sense? In other words, what it would mean then, fitted to destruction, is they fitted themselves for destruction. By suppression and rejection of the truth, like Romans 1.18 said, they actually fitted themselves for destruction. God didn't destine them for that. He knew what they would do, but they destined themselves for the lake of fire. Does that make sense? And that gets back to that. Yeah, it broke his heart. Exactly. Tim? Uh, you were. Thinking of a Wow. What a word picture. Um, <laughs> diets and pants and fitting into the pants and not fitting into the pants, and you did it to yourself if you don't fit in the pants. That's the summary. <laughs> oh, my but what it gets down to, even as you read through the book of Romans, what you see is, yes, God in eternity past, he knew everything that would happen. He works all things together for the counsel of his own will. He's in control, and yet he incorporates human freedom. He does not limit our freedom. Our free will is only limited by our own nature and our own struggle with sin. And so we have the opportunity to respond positively to the gospel, in which case then we would be vessels of mercy, But if we choose to reject the gospel, we become vessels of wrath and we have fitted ourselves for destruction. And that's the message of the book of Romans. That's the message of the gospel, that God is righteous and just in his dealings with all of mankind. And yet he's also incredibly merciful. It's beautiful. Well, shall we pray and adore God?